6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom will we appoint to this duty? But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, once again, uh, the timing works out brilliantly for us with our sermon series uh, on the life of the church. Uh, Today, I had uh, planned to uh, talk about the office of deacon, and next Sunday at our members' meeting, we plan to ask the congregation to approve three candidates for the office of deacon. I was originally thinking during this series months ago, and I, I planned this, that I might you know, maybe this series, this sermon, particular sermon on deacons could help encourage some people to become deacons. At that point, our, our current deacons were, were telling us that we could use more. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if the need for deacons is quite so urgent, assuming that you approve the candidates next week. I think that'll be something like a 50% increase in the number of deacons, and uh, the need might not be as urgent. Obviously, we don't want every member uh, to become a deacon, otherwise deacon ends up meaning nothing at all. But uh, that doesn't mean that we won't need more deacons in the future. First uh, Timothy 3.13 says that those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So you can all consider that uh, encouragement that Paul gives for serving as a deacon. And I'll also make a similar point I did last week uh, when talking about elders, that as we think about the the nature of this office as of deacon in the church, uh, it does tell us something about the nature of church as a whole. We have uh, this office of elder or pastor or overseer responsible for teaching and general leadership of the church. The only other biblical office is deacon. So what are deacons responsible for? Uh, what do deacons do and what does that tell us about our, our ministry, our mission as a church? Well, what do deacons do uh, turns out to be kind of a challenging question. Uh, different churches define deacons and, and do different things uh, with that office and some uh, traditions deacons are kind of almost second-class clergy, a trainee pastor or you know, pastoral sidekick or something like that, uh, maybe a step on the way to uh, becoming elder. Uh, for other churches, deacons maybe form a kind of governing council, as if your senior pastor is the president and the deacons are like Congress, and it may or may not be just about as healthy as that situation. But 
Uh, we, we could list several ways churches understand deacons, and it's okay to have some flexibility because the, the Bible doesn't give us a specific uh, structure for this. But I do think the Bible gives us some direction and, and some boundaries. Um, the word deacon in English is just a rendering of the Greek word, which is diakonos, just means servant. Sometimes it's translated as minister. Minister is rendering of Latin word, which also just means servants. So deacons are servants. doesn't tell us much because in the New Testament, the apostles also think of themselves as servants. Certainly elders should think of themselves as, as servants as well. But we get some clues here um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is not our text this morning, but uh, this is where we looked at it last week. Paul discusses the qualifications for elder and then uh, for deacon, clearly using the word deacon as a separate office uh, in the life of the church. And the, the key difference here, the, the description of qualifications is really similar, except that uh, elders must be able to teach but deacons only need to be what we would call well-taught, says holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, some deacons turn out to be able to teach. Uh, Stephen and, and Philip, two of the men selected in Acts 6, go on to do some incredible uh, teaching and preaching of the gospel. That wasn't specifically what they were called to do in the context of Acts chapter 6. That was just something they did as Christians who were in the right right time of, with the right gifts uh, to do that. But we need to back up the truck, and I need to explain why I'm even talking about Acts chapter 6, because Acts 6, it describes the appointment of seven men to some kind of office, but it doesn't explicitly say that these guys are deacons, and commentators like to get all pedantic on us here and insist that we shouldn't call these men deacons because it doesn't use the word deacon to describe them. Maybe we should call them proto-deacons, you know, if they didn't have a badge that says Deacon Stephen or Deacon Prochorus, uh, they weren't technically deacons. My response is, whatever, they're deacons. Um, Look, there, there are two offices that we see described in the, in the New Testament, at least local church offices. We can talk about apostle as a separate, sort of more universal church office, but two local church offices, elder and deacon. It's clear that elders teach and oversee. Deacons do something else. Uh, these seven dudes are, are doing something else, so they're deacons. Whether or not the church came up with the title deacon for them until later might fascinate Bible scholars in an academic way, but for us it makes no difference. We call the office deacon. Paul called the office deacon in 1 Timothy. That's what the seven in Acts are doing. I mean, we call all of these people Christians, and the word Christian wasn't invented until the gospel had come to Antioch later, so whatever. Uh, again, they're deacons, and the work that they are doing is called a, a service, a diakonia, in chapter 6, verse 1, the daily service of, of food. I've got a different translation than the uh, ESV. I think this is LSB or something, Legacy Standard Bible, but brings out that it is the word service uh, there. So it is a service, and, and the next verse, it is serving uh, tables, um, so it is described with the same root word as deacon. So Acts 6, regardless, anyway, long story short, Acts 6 is relevant to the office of deacon. That's why we're looking at it this morning. And my plan is to summarize the story itself because uh, 
even though maybe this is boring for, for some of you to start talking about church offices, and again, is this going to be a bylaws conversation again, but it's a beautiful example, really, of the church responding to a potentially difficult situation, and then at the end of it, coming out stronger with even more gospel focus and gospel growth. So we'll look at the, the situation uh, in Act 6 and how they dealt with it and try to bring out the main point and then go back and make a few just basic specific applications to the office of deacon itself, finally to the church as a whole. So here we go. The story starts with complaining in the church. I know that's hard to imagine. Uh, complaining itself was a symptom, though, of three good things that were going on here. Uh, first, the church in Jerusalem is growing. The disciples were multiplying in number. It's growing fast. And second, the church has this ministry of daily care of, of widows. Uh, widows would have been in particular uh, distress because they, they have no ability to, to, to work, to care for themselves. This is a matter of Christians taking care of one another. They have this ministry. That's a good thing that has arisen. And thirdly, the church in Jerusalem here is drawing in different kinds of people. At the very least, it's a bilingual church. That's what we're talking about with Hellenists and Hebrews. They're Greek-speaking Jews and uh, Aramaic-speaking uh, Jews. The Hellenists would have spoken Greek. The, the Hebrews speak uh, Aramaic, even though they're both ethnically uh, Jewish. Uh, they may have also had some uh, just cultural uh, differences and things like uh, how do we interpret and apply Old Testament law to daily life as Hellenists maybe are more adapted to life in Greek culture and the the Hebrews may have resisted it, but there's no indication that the, the cultural issues present any issue for their church unity at all. The issue here is, of course, that the Hellenistic widows seem to be getting left out of this church's ministry of, of care for the widows. And this was not intentional. Acts has a lot to say about the, the sense of, of unity and care for one another uh, within the church. It's not that the Hebrews didn't care about the Hellenistic widows. It may have been a simple language barrier. The needs of the, the Hellenistic widows just aren't getting communicated as well. It could also be that they have kind of different social circles. The Hebrews maybe already know the Hebrew widows since before they were Christians. They know who they are, but when you don't speak the same language as someone else, it's, it's hard to really get, get to know them, uh, to know who they are, who the, where the needs are. It's, it's kind of like Babel, right? Speaking different languages just makes it harder to work together. So no one was trying to leave anyone out. They just ended up doing it anyway, unintentionally. Care for widows up to this point had been more informal, you might call organic, uh, based in genuine love for one another. But that wasn't enough. Maybe sometimes love just ain't enough. Sometimes you need structure and, and leadership to do this intentionally in order to make sure that they're doing it well, right? To care for people well. So there's already, uh, step aside and make an application for us, that 
You know, if you think that spending time sorting out leaders and officers and governing structures and going to meetings somehow gets in the way of natural, organic ministry of the church, it's important to consider what's going on here in Acts 6. There can be times when love and good intentions aren't enough, when you need to look at your organization and your leadership and how you're connecting those good intentions to reality. And that's exactly what the apostles do in the situation here. They find out about this complaint, and their response I find a little bit challenging as a leader in the church because they see this problem and they just don't weigh in on it themselves at all. Uh, they, my, my take on this passage is, is that the complaint is probably legitimate, but the apostles refrain from saying anything about it. They just call the church to select some other leaders, again, essentially deacons, who will themselves look into it. They delegate the whole thing. I know I've felt too often uh, and too often given in to uh, temptation to weigh in on things that maybe I should just entrust to others, right? And this situation in Acts 6, uh, it seems like it has the potential to divide this new and growing church, uh, but they don't immediately comment on it. They instruct the church to select seven, they say, qualified men, good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and they just trust those deacons to resolve the situation and to resolve it well. In fact, they trust the Holy Spirit to work through these deacons. And the reason they come up with this solution, uh, stated twice, is so that they themselves can keep their focus on uh, prayer and on uh, the preaching of the Word. Uh, it's not pleasing to God for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. By the way, I don't think we need to see anything derogatory in the idea of, of serving tables the way some folks might talk about waiting tables today as, as if being a server in a restaurant is an inferior uh, position. Now, the problem is that caring for the widows is important, so important that unless someone else resolves the, the concern, the disciples, the, the apostles themselves, the twelve, will have to take care of that, that, and if the apostles do that, then who's going to be preaching the word? So again, the, the apostles gather together the whole church, they lay out their plan, the whole church agreed, Hebrew and Hellenist alike, they pick these seven guys, apostles pray for them, lay hands on them, which is their way of formally appointing them to a church office. It's the office, office of deacon, by the way. Something interesting to notice about these guys here uh, is that they all have very Greek names and not at all Hebrew or Aramaic names. You know, Stephanos, Philippos, Prochoros, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus. Some of these guys sound like they should be arguing with Socrates in the marketplace somewhere or something. They almost certainly are Hellenists other than, of course, Timon, who I think is a meerkat who helped Simba retake the Pride Lands. The last one on the list, uh, we'll just call him Nicholas, we'll call him Nick, uh, he's a proselyte from Antioch. What that means is that he is a Gentile by birth who had converted to Judaism before uh, then becoming a believer in Christ. So these guys are all very Hellenistic, who are appointed to, to 
look into this issue of the Hellenistic widows uh, being left out. The lesson there, of course, is don't complain or we'll put you in charge of something. That's not the lesson, actually. Not only are these men full of wisdom in the spirit, but they also speak the language that they need to to make sure the Greek-speaking widows don't get overlooked. Uh, The whole church, Hebrew and Hellenist, put them in charge of this. uh, And so they clearly have knowledge of who will make sure the Hellenistic widows are left out. There are both practical and spiritual factors uh, at play in picking these guys. It's also a tremendous show of good faith on the the part of the the Hebrews to pick all Hellenists in response to this Hellenist complaint. There's no concern that they're going to try to get revenge by leaving the Hebrew widows out or anything like that. It just doesn't enter into their thinking as, as a church. Well, the upshot of all of this is in verse 7, that the word of God, the gospel, keeps on spreading. Number of disciples continues to multiply. And it's interesting, we add here, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Um, Historians tell us that there were possibly as many as 20,000 lower-ranking priests uh, who worked, maybe worked ordinary jobs most of the year until their turn to ca- came up each year to, to serve in the temple for a couple weeks or so. And they say that there was a huge wealth gap between the chief priests who could be quite well off and the poorer priests sometimes literally starved to death. Uh, the chief priests, as you may remember, think back to the Old Testament, the people are supposed to give of their own income for the, the livelihood of the priests, and the higher-ranking priests tend to take all of that for themselves and leave these poorer priests with nothing. So I think what's going on here, the priests are drawn to the church and drawn to Christ as they see the love of Christ on display in the life of the church. It's not just that they think that they're going to get a handout from the church. They see the church taking steps to care for the needs of ordinary widows as their own chief priests had failed to do, serving only themselves. They looked to the church and saw this love of neighbor on display that even the priests of Israel had failed to show to others, and that testifies to the truth of the gospel. And the gospel growth was in part the fruit of faithful deacon ministry, not only allowing the apostles to continue preaching the word, but enabling the people of God to put uh, the gospel on display in their life together. It's a really beautiful account of an issue in the local church, a complaint, a conflict, something that could very well have split the church, but instead it became an opportunity for the followers of Jesus to serve each other more effectively. So leadership in the church matters because people matter and because the way that we care for each other matters. The way we steward our resources matters and our mission to the lost matters. So that's what I would say is the main point, that the purpose of any leadership, any structure we have in the church, including the office of deacon, is ultimately to help the church carry out our mission, our service to one another, our mission to the lost. Church officers help the church to act like the church. Good intentions aren't always enough. When we get together in a group of any size, 
we often need leaders to help the group put its good intentions into practice. Again, some things can happen just organically and without any structure and informally, and that's great. Uh, But when any part of the church's life grows to a certain size, we need intentional leadership to make sure that it is done well. We need spirit-filled leadership. So that's the main point. And from here, I said I would just pick out a few specific applications about the office of deacon and then some applications for the church in general. Again, whether you're serving as a deacon or interested in serving as a deacon or not, uh, this is part of the life of the church. It, it's, we're going to ask you to, to approve deacons, and, and so it is something we should all uh, seek to, to understand. What does God's word say about this? So we'll start with that complicated question of what do deacons do. Mentioned earlier, elders, it's easier to say, are responsible for teaching and overall uh, oversight of uh, the church. I think elders are those responsible in Hebrews 13 for keeping watch over souls as those who will give an account Uh, Of course, the the Jerusalem church in Acts 6 didn't have elders yet. The apostles are are kind of filling that role. But deacon ministry comes into play when you had a need arising that required the leadership of a church officer, but that need wasn't uh, for preaching or teaching or general leadership and shepherding of the church. Something that was important to the life and, and fellowship and mission and ministry of the church but to handle it themselves, uh, those who teach the word would have had to uh, abandon that responsibility of teaching and leading and, and shepherding souls. In Acts 6, the issue happened to be this benevolence ministry to widows. Uh, but it could be anything. It could be a ministry of the church to care for individuals like it was here. It could be administering more institutional uh, needs of, of the church. You know, we've tended to focus on things that are more institutional than individual, which we also need done, right? Uh, Things like tracking our finances, maintaining the building, uh, figuring out our security uh, plans and child care and fellowship meals and things like that. Uh, We have had some conversations about uh, finding ways to connect deacons more to to individual needs as well. I could point to some ways that that has uh, been going on already. There are different ways to structure deacon ministry to go on for forever about structures. I know it's not very exciting. In Acts 6, you have seven guys chosen for one particular ministry. Some churches have a, a team of deacons that would handle anything like this that comes up. At some point, some would prefer to appoint individual deacons uh, for specific areas. So you might have a deacon of child care, a deacon of property, and, and so on. We're kind of in between. We have some deacons taking point on specific areas, but they've all been meeting together to, to coordinate efforts. What's more important than the exact structure, though, is that the need comes first, that however you structure the ministry, uh, that deacons respond to uh, specific needs in the church that come up, uh, material needs, we might call them, whether they're institutional or, or individual. So what do deacons do? The answer is, well, what needs done that requires some uh, spiritual leadership and, and wisdom? And it is leadership and wisdom, like the deacons in Acts 6, we can also say, as 
continuing to try to describe what deacons do. They're not doing all the work themselves. I don't think these seven guys were um, solely handling everything. Uh, they're uh, providing some guidance to make sure it gets done. They're not donating all the food themselves or distributing it all themselves. They're monitoring collection of food, figuring out what widows need assistance, making sure someone is taking them uh, the food that they need each day, and, and so on and so forth. So deacons don't do all the work themselves in whatever area. They're, they're just facilitating and making sure it gets done. Again, enabling, empowering the members of the church to care for one another or care for the needs of the church. So basic overview of what deacons do. We could also note that deacons, uh, they do have some degree of autonomy and discretion here. I mentioned the apostles just kind of delegated this to them. They didn't weigh in and say, here's what we think is going on and how to handle it. Uh, didn't tell the church even to pick seven Hellenist deacons. Uh, didn't tell the deacons how to handle things. Um, they didn't take the hours it would have taken to investigate the situation. Maybe the apostles would have had to weigh in more directly if it had risen to a more personal and overt conflict. But at this stage, they're able to delegate the whole thing to the, the deacons. You know, if they had, had done all of that, investigated the complaint, decided on appropriate response, implemented a method, and, uh, you know, if they'd done all of that themselves, uh, then they would have been. Uh, not only distracted from the word of God, but they'd keep other people from, from leading as God had gifted them to do. They'd keep these deacons from a uh, position of, of responsibility and calling. And you'd have the apostles at that time, senior leadership of the, of the church, focused on only one area of church life. And so the whole church would end up struggling to figure out how to carry out all of its ministries this is why we examine deacons before appointing them. We don't take nominations from the floor and vote for them on the spot. We need trustworthy people as deacons because we want to trust them to make those decisions and plans and implement things as, as they see fit. Unless something goes off the rails, uh, the elders don't need to know exactly how scheduling nursery is, is happening or things like that. Uh, they're not assistants who do whatever the elders tell them to do. They have discretion, authorization to figure out how to best handle whatever it is that needs handled. If, as elders, we don't trust others, if we try to handle everything ourselves, then we're not leading where we need to be leading. We'll be stuck in one or two areas of church life and lose sight of the big picture, lose sight of care of souls, and the whole church can suffer from that. Again, I know... Uh, structural things aren't super exciting, maybe, but I know bylaws are boring. It's really not about bylaws. It's about uh, how do we actually function? What does the, the congregation expect elders to do, expect deacons to do? Are our elders uh, feeling pressure to uh, fix every little issue to come up? Um, not that the elders should be above changing the odd light bulb or unclogging the odd uh, toilet here and there, um, but the el are the elders as a whole free to keep their main focus on the big picture of the church's mission and the souls under our care? And maybe a more pertinent question, if we are free to do that, uh, do we actually do it, right? Or do we um, let ourselves be uh, distracted by things that we should be 
entrusting to someone else? Do we trust the deacons to do their thing, or do we uh, waste time micromanaging them? Again, structure does matter uh, because, uh, as does the culture of expectations and the practices that we build on that structure, because the mission of the church matters, right? Uh, we need to make sure that our structure is supporting our mission. And that leads to what will be my final uh, observation to close with this morning. And that's what does the office of deacon tell us about the nature of the church as a whole. We have an office in the church that requires spiritual maturity, by which I mean it requires clear presence and fruit of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And the work of that spirit-filled office is to attend to basic, gen generally physical needs, material needs. I think our governing document somewhere, I, we, we called it material needs requiring wise and spirit-filled oversight. Uh, Dr. Irwin Ince, in a book called The Beautiful Community, makes the point that all our resources are spiritual. And by spiritual, he means that the church's resources have to do with the power and work of the Spirit of God. Her resources are spiritual because her aim is the glory of God and the flourishing of her neighbors. The question is not whether someone needs spiritual care or physical care. We all need spiritual care. The question is what type of spiritual care is required. See, the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus frees us from the drudgery or indignity of embodied physical life. The gospel is that Jesus himself took on human nature, including a human body, so that in that body he could live the perfect life of obedience that we could not, and in that same body he could suffer, experience pain, and take on the penalty of death that we could not pay in our place, so that he offered himself as a sacrifice which we receive by faith. And now the call on us is to present our own bodies to God as a living sacrifice by how we live, to honor God by the way that we live in our bodies and follows from that by the way we use and steward the things of this world that have been entrusted to us. And I think the office of Deacon is a powerful reminder of this. Serving tables, moving food around. It's not unspiritual. It can be deeply spiritual. It is the fruit of the Spirit's work there in the Jerusalem church, and it ends up driving the followers of Jesus to take care of those in need as a, a profound expression of, of love and unity. And the same Spirit also gave that church deacons as a gift to help them do it wisely and well without leaving anyone out. So elders teach the word, but deacons can help us coordinate our efforts in responding to that word, bringing every area of church life under 
that call, that mission of the gospel to glorify God with everything that we are and everything that we have. Leaders in the Bible, whether they are elders or deacons, they're not a necessary evil. They are portrayed as a gift. They help us embody as a church the values of the kingdom, whether that's welcoming and caring for little children, guarding the safety of the flock, providing opportunities for a table fellowship with other believers, or numerous other ways that I'm, I'm probably leaving out here. Sorry if you're a deacon and I didn't mention your, your deacon thing. But all of our deacons, we don't have, it was Elder Appreciation Month, it's, we don't really have a Deacon Appreciation Month, maybe we, maybe we should, but deacons can help us embody the love of Christ. Their, their work, their service is, is important. That is the goal, that is the challenge, that is what the office of deacon reminds us of, that we are to put Christ first uh, in everything uh, that we do. I don't believe that deacons just take care of the stuff that don't matter that, so that we can focus on the, the, the things that, that do matter. I think deacons are important because everything uh, in the life of the church matters so that when the world looks on us, they see the love of Christ so that we make the gospel that we are proclaiming in our words visible uh, with our actions and the shape of our life together. Close there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave us your Son. Though we wandered away from you, not just wandered, but deliberately rebelled and ran from you, that you sent your Son to pursue us, to die for us, to rise again for our justification. Thank you for that substitute, but also example of Christ, the love that he displayed, who he is, and what he has done for us. And we thank you as well for this wonder that we would be called to make Christ known, to follow his example, follow in the footsteps of Christ within this world, telling our, our neighbors about who he is, but also showing in our actions, in our care for one another, in the life of the church, that the love of God for us is real. That as Christ himself said, all people would know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ as we love one another. We confess that we are still sinners. We are still rebellious. We are still insufficient for these things, that we are in so many ways prone to make idols out of the things that you have given us and entrusted to us, rather than using those things with thanksgiving, using those things for your glory. We ask that you would help us, that you would transform our hearts every day 
by the power of your gospel. And we thank you for those spirit-filled deacons that you have given to us as a church who help in so many ways uh, that we see that we don't see to make sure that our resources as a church, our stewardships, the things that you've entrusted to us are taken care of in a way that is honoring to you, that is in keeping with the priorities of the gospel. Pray that you would bless those who currently serve or will serve as deacons. Pray that the service would be, as your word says, uh, something that gives them a good standing and great confidence in the faith. I pray that it would be encouraging for them. And we pray for the fruit of their ministry uh, as well, that uh, by your grace, by your spirit working through them, that they would empower us as a church to live out the values of the kingdom so that the gospel would be made visible in us for your glory. It's the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.